I came not to elevate your spirits, but to humiliate you to the bottom of the abyss, where you can get no lower, and where no man can rise from by his own forces, but only God can pull him with his mighty hand from the depth. I consider the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick to be a genuine spiritual visionary and a kind of postmodern prophet. Not a saint, but certainly a seer. Many people have acknowledged his uncanny foresight, but he's not often credited with having a careful or systematic symbolism in his works. Now, given his immense productivity, and the methods he used to achieve it, primarily massive doses of amphetamines, I don't think his work is anywhere near as intricate in this regard as those high modernists that he admired. Still, there are elements of his work, images and intertextual references, that I think deserve more careful scrutiny. For example, his short story, Faith of Our Fathers, is a masterpiece. It's set in a near-future dystopian Vietnam that's near-future to the time when it was written, which was 1967. This dystopian Vietnam is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, or so it seems. The hero is typically Dickian, a middling bureaucrat named Chen, who is plunged into a mystery of cosmic proportions that he is woefully unprepared to face. After taking some snuff he bought from a street peddler, he watches the nightly mandatory broadcast by the great benefactor, during which the dictator appears to transform into some kind of horrifying mechanical creature thinking he's been dosed with some kind of hallucinogen, he calls the police. But when the snuff is analyzed, it's found to contain not a hallucinogen, but a drug that's used to stop hallucinations. Nothing illegal, so it's not investigated. Later, Chin is contacted by a representative of a mysterious group within the inner party who says that they're the ones responsible for giving him the drug. They believe that the public is being dosed with hallucinogens through the water supply, and they've been selectively dosing various people with a drug to counteract the effects. Each subject had a vision of the great benefactor transformed, but disturbingly, not everyone has seen the same thing. If the drug is preventing hallucinations, you would expect them all to see his one true form. Even more interestingly, not everyone has a different vision either. Instead, there appears to be a limited number of distinct types, 12 to be precise. Now, I probably don't need to explain that the number 12 is significant. The 12 types form a zodiac. 12 is a classic symbolic number, 12 months of the year, 12 apostles, 
12 tribes of Israel. Now for a more difficult case. I've always been intrigued by the name of the novel within the novel, The Man in the High Castle. If for some reason you don't know this PKD classic, let me just synopsize it for you real quick. It's set in an alternate timeline in which the Axis powers won World War II, with the United States split between two occupying forces, Germany in the east and Japan in the west, with the Rocky Mountain states forming the last remaining free zone. The novel follows a number of characters on either side of the occupation at various levels of the social hierarchy, but its action mostly occurs in PKD's well-trod territory of California, San Francisco specifically. The real name of the titular character is Hawthorne Abinson, who lives in the Free Zone. It is rumored in a well-fortified castle in the Rockies because he's written a banned book that might get him killed, a book which proposes a reality in which the Allies won the war. Everyone appears to be covertly reading this book, which is titled The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. So the book in the book is a kind of mirror which looks out at us into our reality as we look into this fiction, but it doesn't reflect back our world exactly. It in fact reflects a different world which echoes in a number of ways our world, but not exactly. We get a whole bunch of nested realities in the man in the High Castle. And since Philip K. Dick used the I Ching to write it, we have another intertextual layer that is warping the reality within the book. Now it's clear what the title The Man in the High Castle refers to, but the reason behind the title of the book within the book is largely opaque. We know the reference is from the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 5 which reads in the King James Version quote, and when they shall be afraid of that which is high and fears shall be in the way and the almond tree shall flourish and the grasshopper shall be a burden and desire shall fail because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets." End quote. Now it's slightly different wording than the one PKD uses. At first it seems like a coded prophecy, like something out of Revelations, but Ecclesiastes, also known as the Preacher, is not one of the prophetic books. It's one of the wisdom books, along with Proverbs and Job. It's a problematic grouping. Koholet in the Hebrew Bible belongs to what is called the Ketuvim, or writings, in a subgrouping called the Megillot, or Five Scrolls. Other books considered to be wisdom literature, such as Proverbs and Job, are included in the subgroup called Sifri Emet, or Documents of Truth. But anyway, These generally conform to the ancient Near Eastern genre 
of Wisdom Literature, which offers observations and principles concerning the nature of life, divinity, and virtue. But Ecclesiastes is a sort of curious entry in this genre, as it belongs to the tradition of wisdom that questions the wisdom of wisdom. Its most famous refrain goes in the King James translation, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Other versions proclaim that all is futile or all is meaningless. This is probably the strangest book to be canonized in the Bible. What it has to say runs 180 degrees opposite from what most people who actually believe in the Bible would say is the message of the Bible, which is supposed to give your life meaning, not tell you that it's all meaningless. Ecclesiastes actually tells you that it isn't good to be too wise or too virtuous, that the same fate awaits both good and bad men, for the body to go down into the ground and the spirit to inhabit some kind of nebulous underworld called Sheol. Now this is a fairly generic belief about the afterlife for the ancient Mediterranean, difficult to distinguish from the Greek Hades. During the Second Temple period, the Sadducees basically kept to this idea when they didn't deny the existence of an afterlife entirely. In fact, people with the notion that the Hebrew Bible has much to say about getting you to heaven and keeping you out of hell ought to get a rude awakening. Heaven exists because it's where God lives, but that doesn't mean you're going there. You will be buried with your fathers before you, and after that limp on as some kind of ghost, maybe. Likewise, if you think that life on earth is a battlefield between God and the devil, or Jesus and Satan, you're thinking far more like the ancient Persians than the ancient Hebrews that wrote the Bible. Evil is not some autonomous force. When Kohelet mentions evil, he simply means all the bad things that might befall a man for any reason whatsoever in life. But this isn't the place to get into the intricacies of this fascinating book. I'm really concerned about the meaning of a mere few words from it. But speaking of which, that word that gets translated as vanity is hevel, which in Hebrew is literally vapor. Translation is always interpretation. Robert Alter chooses to keep the literal sense of air while also implying uselessness. Quote, this is mere breath and herding the wind. So book 12, verse 5, is a kind of prophecy, but not of some future time of troubles for society at large. It appears to describe the normal process of growing old. Let's go ahead and read the whole chapter, since it's fairly short. Quote, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. 
in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened and the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird and all the daughters of music shall be brought low also when they shall be afraid of that which is high and fears shall be in the way and the almond tree shall flourish and the grasshopper shall be a burden and desire shall fail because man goeth to his long home and the mourners go about the streets or the silver cord be loosed or the golden bowl be broken or the pitcher be broken at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it vanity of vanities saith the preacher all is vanity End quote. there are a number of versions of this text as you can imagine the New Living Bible reads before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper and the caper berry no longer inspires sexual desire this one makes it an explicit simile the grasshopper is definitely you elimination of the pathetic fallacy the new international reads when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire is no longer stirred i really like the eliotic desire is no longer stirred we'll look at his poetry in a moment where sexual impotence is also a theme Iberian standard reads simply the grasshopper loses its spring many versions stress the weakness of the grasshopper not the heaviness it's like in the late part of the year when the cold is coming and you see the grasshoppers making these strange pathetic jumps sideways not going anywhere flies too are slow and heavy and clearly dying taken both together we find a force of gravity keeping the creature earthbound which in the height of his powers is capable of temporarily leaving the earth for the air in this we find the tug of war between matter and spirit something we're going to deal with a lot throughout this series some versions even make the grasshopper specifically a locust and instead of its heaviness speak of its multiplying or its increase robert alter in his version of the wisdom books translates the relevant phrase in verse 5 as quote and the almond blossoms and the locust tree is laden and he comments quote the allegorizers have exercised strenuous ingenuity on these lines the almond blossom corresponding with white hair the sagging locust to an impotent penis and so forth it is less strained to read these lines simply as images of the cycle of growth and decay in nature as man is about to depart from that cycle the most puzzling reference is to the laden locust some see this as indicating a plant not an insect in fact a meaning carried by the english word as well others detect a reference to the female locust heavy with eggs 
after language she dies. Perhaps the least strained construction is a locust tree heavy with ripe fruit. End quote. We're going to eventually move on to discuss the meaning of the locust, which is the symbolic infernal counterpart to the grasshopper, just as the toad is of the frog and the wasp of the bee. Please go listen to those related Forest of Symbols episodes. But for now, let's stick to grasshoppers. The situation is we are old. Things are falling apart. We are getting weak. A mere grasshopper, a light little leaping bug, appears as something heavy and burdensome. So what significance does this have for the sci-fi story about America being under the twin burdens of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan? Well, I can only think of its connection to this idea of cycles of birth and decay at the level of civilizations. Nations, too, have their youth and age. The modern age is primarily one that believes in the ideology of perpetual progress, but a strong minor chord has been struck by cyclical historians such as Vico, Spangler, and Arnold Toynbee, and America's own homegrown Spangler, the forgotten Brooks Adams, grandson of President John Adams and brother to the slightly more well-known man of letters Henry Adams. Brooks's own pessimistic theory was laid down in his work The Law of Civilization and Decay, a title which could just as well describe the book of Ecclesiastes. The man in the high castle would be almost useless as a warning about what would have happened had America not acted as it in fact did in World War II. Instead, it shows America under the boot of foreign ideologies, foreign governments, and foreign peoples to show that its empire is not eternal. No empires are. It shows white people as second-class citizens, not coincidentally during the height of civil rights activity in the USA. Now, the current woke position is to mandate glee whenever whites or the West are put in their place. But that's a little hard to do when it's being done by fascists. Yes, we're probably going to see something roughly equivalent to fascism in this country. No, it's not going to be called that. And maybe some of the people who are cheering it on might define themselves even as anti-fascists. But anyway, there's another famous work of historical pessimism that you might be familiar with, which also cites the grasshopper passage of Ecclesiastes. T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland from 1922. There's simply no way I'll be able to do this poem justice on this podcast. It is the premier work of poetic modernism 
in the 20th century. All due respect to Pound's Cantos. Written in densely elusive free verse with constantly and abruptly shifting voices and perspectives, it deals with the breakdown of European culture following the First World War, its collapse into fragments. Here's the relevant section, quote, What are the roots that clutch, what branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats, and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock. And I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear and a handful of dust. End quote. Did you catch Ecclesiastes in there? Once again, it's not an exact quote. In fact, it appears quite transformed and might be easy to miss, but it's Eliot's own footnote to the poem that directs us to Ecclesiastes 12.5. I guess it's appropriate for an Eliot poem that nobody can agree on exactly what the phrase son of man means. It has many meanings, but one of them is an appellation for Jesus, who was the son of God and the son of man. Therefore, I sometimes imagine that the speaker in this passage is Satan, and that this is the scene of Christ's temptation in the desert. But anyway, I love those evocative two lines about the shadow. The body casts a long shadow, both at morning and evening, because of the angle of the sun. So for Eliot's passage to work, we'd have to be facing east, but then the shadow would be at our back in the morning when we face the sun. And then in the evening, the sun would be at our back and the shadow in front of us. But the shadow shortens or rises to meet you as you move to midday. So it's still a bit confusing. I don't quite understand how the physics is supposed to work. But at any rate, a common metaphor for the final period of our lives is a sunset. Spangler's literal German title for the decline of the West was Der Untergang des Abendlandes. Abendlandes, a term for the Occidental West, is literally evening land. The sun sets in the West, after all. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. One thing that inevitably happens in the sunset of the life of an individual or a civilization is that we find ourselves facing our shadow. There's a sense in which Eliot's poem is also eastward facing, for it begins with many Western references, such as the Fisher King myth, and ends by quoting Sanskrit, the famous Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. The feeble translation, as Eliot said, is the peace 
which passeth understanding. The man in the high castle is also, in a sense, eastward facing, as we see. California taken over by the Japanese Empire of the Sun. What about the line, fear in a handful of dust? Well, the key to this line was already given to us in the epigraph to the poem, although it's in Latin and Greek. Translated, it reads, I have seen with my own eyes the sibyl hanging in a jar. And when the boys asked her, what do you want? She answered, I want to die. The quote is from the Satyricon of Petronius, a satire of Roman imperial decadence. The reference is to the Cumaean sibyl, a prophetess who lived a thousand years. Apollo desired to take her virginity and offered to grant her a wish in exchange. She took a handful of sand and asked to live for as many years as the grains of sand she held. However, she failed to ask for eternal youth also, and so her body withered with age, growing smaller until she was eventually kept in a jar. This motif recurs also in the myth of Eos and Tithonus. Eos, the goddess of dawn, fell in love with a handsome Trojan prince named Tithonus and requested Zeus to make him immortal. Zeus agreed, but as she didn't ask for him to retain eternal youth, Tithonus aged and shriveled until he couldn't even move. Eos had him locked in a small chamber, but taking some pity on him, transformed him into a cicada. Although cicadas are sometimes mistaken for grasshoppers or locusts, they are quite different in behaviors and life cycle. They can be very noisy at dawn, which may be why they are connected with Eos here. J.G. Fraser noted that the ancient Greeks thought that cicadas had attained immortality through periodically shedding their skin, something often believed of snakes as well. A Late Story by PKD, The Eye of the Sibyl, concerns the Kumayan prophetess. The main character is one of her priests who accidentally stumbles onto the secret of her prophetic ability. Communication with crab-like creatures that he refers to as immortals. They sound like the beings from the stars that are referenced in other PKD works like Valus, benevolent creatures intent on helping humanity. But in the course of the story, we learn that they are from, quote, the inner world and dwell in the minds of men, perhaps the collective unconscious. Philos Dictos, the priest, awakens as Phil Dick, the science fiction writer. He has an encounter with the caduceus symbol, the two intertwined snakes, which triggers his memory of being alive in ancient Rome, and the sibyl's prophecy of a time of darkness soon to arrive, followed by mankind's awakening and the return of a golden age 2,000 years later. Since this was the time of Augustus, that would mean we are on the verge of this time now, as the story was written in 1975. The short tale, not 
one of his best, but not bad either, has a complex intertextual relation to the rest of Dick's work, his own personal mystical or visionary experiences, Christianity, and American and Roman history, particularly via Virgil's fourth eclogue, which he quotes at the end. That golden age referred to as ruled over by Saturn, which is not unrelated to the rest of our episode. Now, I'll probably go back and do some supplementary material on this story, so check the Patreon for that. Patreon.com slash SymbolPod. But for now, let's go back and look some more at the man in the high castle. Besides Ecclesiastes, there's another puzzling literary reference in The Man in the High Castle, a novella by the 20th century American writer Nathaniel West. It shows up in a scene where the antiques dealer Robert Childan visits the home of a young professional Japanese couple, Paul and Betty Kasura, as is fashionable in imperial-occupied California. The Kasuras fetishize American curios and historical artifacts. According to the prevailing social hierarchy, the couple are in every way Childan's superiors, so he must show deference to them. Childan is therefore outwardly obsequious and inwardly full of petty resentments. But being middle-class liberal hypocrites, the couple acts as if no such inequality of status exists. Paul asks Childan for his help in interpreting an American novel he is struggling to understand. The aforementioned Miss Lonely Hearts, Childan admits that he has not read it, but leaves out that he hadn't even heard of it. Typical American, Childan is all business, completely ignorant of his own cultural heritage. Quote, Disappointment showed in Paul's expression. Too bad. It is a tiny book tells about man who runs column in daily paper, receives heartache problems constantly until evidently driven mad by pain and has delusion that he is J. Christ. Do you recall? Perhaps read long ago? No, Robert said. Gives strange view about suffering, Paul said. Insight of most original kind into meaning of pain for no reason, problem which all religions cope with. Religions such as Christian often declare must be sin to account for suffering. And West seems to add more compelling view of this over older notions. And West possibly saw could be suffering without cause due to his being a Jew. Robert said, If Germany and Japan had lost the war, the Jews would be running the world today, through Moscow and Wall Street. End quote. This bit of rote anti-Semitism on Childan's part is a social faux pas. Paul and Betty fall into silent disappointment with Robert as an invisible gulf opens up between them and Childan. 
Nevertheless, instead of recognizing his own mistake, Childan takes it as a sign of his own superiority. They have not understood him. While he hasn't read the book, and probably never will, he knows that if he did, he, as a white American, would understand its meaning far more than they. And although he inwardly fumes at the injustice at having to play the inferior role when the reality is precisely the opposite, he nevertheless gloats at his own knowledge of this superiority, and his mood brightens. The Kasuras are polite and benevolent because their secure social standing allows them the luxury. Childan is petty and vengeance-minded, eager for the slightest chance to show superiority, if only to himself, because his standing is insecure. One of the most fallacious of our culture's beliefs is that victims of social discrimination are morally superior. Aside from whether or not Childan would understand Miss Lonely Hearts, there is the question of Paul's interpretation. Is it correct? In the context of the man in the high castle, the idea of suffering from the mere fact of Jewishness has some poignancy because there are Nazis still trying to hunt down and exterminate any remaining Jews. The character Frank Frink is a crypto-Jew living in California. In Japanese-occupied territory, he is able to scrape by with his double identity, a task that would be much more difficult in German-occupied territory. This issue of crypto-Judaism is a thread running through Jewish history and will occupy us much during this series of episodes. Almost everyone in the Man in the High Castle hides under some kind of false identity, or at least is not what they appear to be on the surface. The Swedish businessman Baines is really Rudolf Wegener, working for German military intelligence. Joe Sinadella is an undercover Nazi assassin. And of course, when we meet the titular man in the high castle, Hawthorne Abinson, the circumstances are not quite what they are rumored to be. While Childan does not have to conceal his identity, he still possesses the kind of double consciousness that's common to subordinated peoples, a habitual difference between the outer appearance and behavior and inner mentality that we'll start to see a lot. In fact, later we'll see it developed into a whole philosophy. As for the relevance of Nathaniel West, well, he was born Nathan Weinstein and apparently had a troubled and opaque relationship to his own Jewish identity. The protagonist of Miss Lonely Hearts is never said to be Jewish, in fact is overtly Christian, although there is one oblique reference to anti-Semitism and a swastika that shows up in a dream. It's a little bit surprising that Dick didn't mention West's more famous novel. Since it is also about California and is called The Day of the Locust, the locust being a type of grasshopper, it has some thematic resonance with The Man in the High Castle. But we're going to explore that book along with the rest of West's all-too-brief oeuvre in part two. But first, Miss Lonely Hearts. Our protagonist is a writer for an advice column, and is known only by his pseudonym, Miss Lonely Hearts. Like myself, 
and many of my Twitter mutuals, he's an Anon. Like so many of the characters in The Man in the High Castle, he is operating under an assumed identity, at least vis-a-vis -vis his readers. At first, he had thought that Job would be a lark, a stepping stone to a better job, perhaps as a gossip columnist. But in the face of the letters he receives daily, which lay bare the miseries of the manifold souls of Depression-era America, he finds his work increasingly burdensome and sinks into a deep depression. Speaking of himself in second person, Miss Lonely Hearts describes the situation thus, quote, He too considers the job a joke, but after several months of it, the joke begins to escape him. He sees that the majority of the letters are profoundly humble pleas for moral and spiritual advice, that they are inarticulate expressions of genuine suffering. He also discovers that his correspondents take him seriously. For the first time in his life, he is forced to examine the values by which he lives. This examination shows him he is the victim of the joke and not its perpetrator." End quote. We read a letter from a young girl without a nose who is contemplating suicide. A letter from a boy whose disabled sister was raped and fears that she might be pregnant and will be punished by her parents for it. A long letter from a woman married to a psychopath who senselessly torments her. And there was plenty of economic angst going around at the time this novel came out. But these problems are timeless part of the human condition. Miss Lonely Hearts drinks and has a series of affairs, each of them unsatisfying in its own unique way. Betty, his fiancée, cares for him but fails to understand him, offering him comfort where he desires judgment. Mary Shrike, his editor's wife, is just using his lust for her in order to tease her husband and stoke the flames of her own marriage. Faye Doyle, a woman who writes to his advice column, is simply too aggressive and masculine. She arouses a misogynistic disgust in Miss Lonely Hearts. His affair with her, a married woman, has fatal consequences. He reads the brothers Karamazov in his Spartan apartment and keeps an ivory Christ figure nailed to the wall at the foot of his bed with big spikes. He admits to having a Christ complex. There are apparently real individuals obsessed with the idea that they are destined to be a savior or messiah, who identify with or believe that they are Christ. We will be examining a real-life case study momentarily. In a detail of the kind West is good at, he writes of the figure that, quote, the desired effect had not been obtained, the Christ remained calmly decorative but in the end, it will turn out to be a Chekhov's gun. It's not the only time that a traditional religious icon or ritual fails to achieve its intended purpose. He recalls an incident in which he and some college buddies drunkenly decide to buy a lamb and barbecue it, with Miss Lonely Hearts' insistence that they sacrifice it to God first. But the butchering goes awry, and he must chase it down and smash it with a rock. 
we discover that Miss Lonely Hearts's complex first manifested in early childhood when he attended church and felt something powerful inside him arise while chanting the name of Christ. He had never nurtured this feeling, but his job was bringing it out of him again. West describes it as a kind of hysteria, a, quote, snake whose scales are tiny mirrors in which the dead world takes on a semblance of life, end quote. This short novel is dense with Baroque, often shocking, slightly surrealistic metaphors. A crippled man hobbling across a barroom floor toward Miss Lonely Hearts is described as making, quote, waste motions like that of a partially destroyed insect. Critic Kingsley Widmer comments that, quote, often surrealistically hyper-lucid and extreme, the tropes resonate with the themes of mechanical artifice, hysterical masquerade, and violent breakdown, end quote. West's gift for grotesque and extreme metaphor had an influence on both Flannery O'Connor and J.G. Ballard. Sexual and religious imagery are mingled. Miss Lonely Hearts sees a memorial obelisk in the park as a phallus, its, quote, rigid shadow lengthening in rapid jerks. Looking at the monument itself, it seemed red and swollen in the dying sun, as though it were about to spout a load of granite seed, end quote. In a dream, he takes random items from a junk shop and arranges the items into patterns. Quote, First, he formed a phallus of old watches and rubber boots, then a heart of umbrellas and trout flies, then a diamond of musical instruments and derby hats. After these, a circle, triangle, square, swastika. But nothing proved definitive, and he began to make a gigantic cross. End quote. This procession of symbols is an attempt to order the universe, to negate the world's natural inclination to entropy. We begin with pagan sexual imagery and wind up with the cross. Through a skeptical materialist lens, this can be seen as Freudian sublimation, and we would understand Christianity to triumph not because it is true but because it is the most powerful stay against chaos. These fragments I have shored against my ruins, Eliot wrote near the end of the wasteland. In fact, Miss Lonely Hearts recalls the wasteland so often that Miriam Fuchs has dubbed it the wasteland rescripted. Several motifs from Eliot's poem recur in Miss Lonely Hearts. Stones, spring rain, a thrush, crowds of people... Eliot sensed the Western world moving towards disorder and turned to myth in search of renewal, in his case Christian myth. Other conservative modernists like Lawrence and Yeats used paganism and occultism. But West, a secularized modern Jew, instead performed what we might dub a kind of accelerationism. Fuchs writes, quote, Denying that either order or form through reversion to collective myth is possible, 
West critically pitches his wasteland text toward brutality and chaos. Lacking Eliot's desire for emotional containment, West rewrites the death-life dichotomy, which in the poem settles into a pervasive apathy. In Miss Lonely Hearts, apathy explodes into sadistic aggression. Lonely Hearts' acts of priestly benevolence go haywire. His activities with his, quote, congregation are spasmodic gestures that veer away from communality and order, and his treatment of the women who implore his help deteriorates into misogyny. End quote. Impalement is a frequent motif, recalling Christ being nailed to the cross, his crown of thorns, and the spear that pierced his side after his death. In one scene, Miss Lonely Hearts walks into, quote, the shadow of a lamp post that lay on the path like a spear. It pierced him like a spear. End quote. Observing the lack of signs of spring, more wasteland imagery, he recalls the previous year when, quote, it had taken all the brutality of July to torture a few green spikes through the exhausted dirt. The newspaper editor Shrike says of his wife, with whom Miss Lonely Hearts is having a desultory affair, quote, Sleeping with her is like sleeping with a knife in one's groin. Shrike is named after the bird, also called a butcher bird, that impales insects and other prey on thorns, barbed wire, or any other available sharp objects before feeding on them. In particular, this strategy allows the shrike to prey on the romalea, or lubber grasshopper, which emits a toxic, foul-smelling secretion from its thorax when disturbed. The shrike will leave the impaled grasshopper for a day or two before returning to eat it after the toxins have degraded. This implies a predatory relationship between shrike and Miss Lonely Hearts, making the latter a crucified bug. But remember too that John the Baptist, who announced the coming of Christ, fed on locusts and wild honey in the wasteland. If Miss Lonely Hearts is a Christ-like figure, his editor, Shrike, serves as his Satan. He has the same mastery of rhetoric as Milton's Satan. He's a Mephistophelian mocker. West makes a direct reference to Satan tempting Christ in the wilderness. Quote, At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for forty days and forty nights, and afterwards was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And then Shrike says to Miss Lonely Hearts, My friend, I advise you to give your readers stones. When they ask for bread, don't give them crackers, as does the church, and don't, like the state, tell them to eat cake. Explain that man cannot live by bread alone and give them stones. Teach them to pray each morning. Give us this day our daily stone. End quote. The stone is a symbol which recurs throughout the novel, showing up in different contexts with different connotations. I already mentioned the obelisk in the park. It's a part of Miss Lonely Hearts himself. Not merely his stoic indifference, but his 
deepest, inmost being. When his final fever hits, this stone becomes a furnace, burning with the fire of God. A chapter is titled Shrike and the Dead Pan. Two words, a pun on the term deadpan, a comedic gesture or non-gesture, in which one says something ridiculous with a straight face. And the god Pan, as we mentioned in the Bees episode, is a prototype for post-Christian images of Satan, the lord of the material world, which is animate in paganism, but considered dark and dead matter in all forms of Gnosticism, hence dead Pan. Shrike, the editor, is the lord of matter, of dead things drained of spirit. He mocks Miss Lonely Hearts' pretensions to spirituality and salvation, just as he inverts the relation of bread to stones. He says that Miss Lonely Hearts is not a type of Christ, but Christ a type of Miss Lonely Hearts, the advice columnist to which advice columnists turn, the Miss Lonely Hearts of Miss Lonely Hearts. The satanic always works by inversions, perversions, and reversals. We'll see more of this. Of course, another meaning of pan is bread, something West's Depression-era readers would certainly be short on. But at the book's climax, when his fever breaks, Miss Lonely Hearts imagines his relationship to God as being that of a writer to editor. Quote, he submitted drafts of his column to God, and God approved them. God approved his every thought. End quote. Does this mean, then, that God is a kind of shrike? Quote, he was making a seduction speech. I am a great saint, Shrike cried. I can walk on my own water. Haven't you ever heard of Shrike's passion in the luncheonette, or the agony in the soda fountain? Then I compared the wounds in Christ's body to the mouths of a miraculous purse in which we deposit the small change of our sins. It is indeed an excellent conceit. But now let us consider the holes in our own bodies, and into what these congenital wounds open. Under the skin of man is a wondrous jungle where veins like lush tropical growths hang along overripe organs and weed-like entrails writhe in squirming tangles of red and yellow. In this jungle, flitting from rock-gray lungs to golden intestines, from liver to lights and back to liver again, lives a bird called the soul. End quote. He then goes on to name the ways different religions hunt this bird and declares, I spit on them. Better, I say unto you, better a live bird in the jungle of the body than two stuffed birds on the library table. He's caressing a woman throughout the speech and punctuates it by burying, quote, his triangular face like the blade of a hatchet in her neck. It is as though Shrike is violently taking control of his domain, the material world. We cannot be quite sure that Miss Lonely Hearts's Christ complex is not simple neurosis. In fact, the novel inclines in that direction. Miss Lonely Hearts found himself developing an almost insane sensitiveness to order. Everything had to form a pattern. The shoes under the bed, the ties in the holder, the pencils on the table. When he looked out of a window, he composed the skyline by balancing one building against another. If a bird flew across the arrangement, 
He closed his eyes angrily until it was gone. For a while he seemed to hold his own, but one day he found himself with his back to the wall. On that day, all the inanimate things over which he had tried to obtain control took the field against him. When he touched something, it spilled or rolled to the floor. The collar buttons disappeared under the bed. The point of the pencil broke. The razor fell off. The window shade refused to stay down. He fought back, but with too much violence, and was decisively defeated by the spring of the alarm clock." But maybe the emptiness perceived by Kohelet is a matter of mental illness also. Perhaps all of Ecclesiastes is the record of one big depressive episode. Miss Lonely Hearts' misogyny, which is real, needs to be read in this context. His revulsion of his own sexuality is a part of the battle against the inanimate world of things, the kenoma, the dark material realm. It's in the Gnostic tradition of metaphysical misogyny. The line, he fought back but with too much violence, also describes his battle as it pertains to women. But I want to go back to that image of a snake made of mirrors, which represented Miss Lonely Hearts' hysteria, because I think it is the most important one in the book. Now, snakes definitely deserve their own episode, but suffice it to say for now that the snake represents the will, consciousness, and vital energy. Anya Tillard, a student of Jung and Ludwig Klages, said that, quote, because it sheds its skin, it symbolizes resurrection. Because of its sinuous movement, and because its coils are capable of strangling, it symbolizes strength. Because of its viciousness, it symbolizes the evil side of nature. End quote. The snake corresponds in the body with the spinal cord, the center of nervous energy, and thus we have the linkage of Miss Lonely Hearts' nervous ailments, his Christ complex, and his tendency to strike out violently, as he does against Faye Doyle. As the serpent in the garden, the snake is the bearer of forbidden knowledge. You might think of Satan, a symbol of evil, but the Bible doesn't identify it as such. It simply says that the serpent is the most subtle or crafty of creatures. The role is devilish here, but Jewish esoteric tradition also gives a different role to the serpent. The Hebrew word for serpent, nachash, has the same value in gematria as the word messiah. If you're not familiar, Gematria assigns numerical values to all of the letters, and by adding up the letters in each word, you come up with a numeric value. 
and we can make all kinds of connections between things by finding identical values. So Nachash is Nun, which is 50, Het, 8, Shin, 300. Total, 358. Mashiach is Mem, 40, Shin, 300, Yod, 10, Het, 8, 358. You may notice we're dropping vowels here. That's standard for Hebrew. Doing a little more numerology, we can reduce the number by adding 3 plus 5 plus 8, which is 16, and then 1 plus 6 equals 7, the magic number. In the 13th century, a Jewish mystic named Rabbi Ben Jacob HaKohen compared the Messiah to a snake. The Zohar predicts that the holy snake, the Messiah, will kill the evil snake, marry the divine princess, and redeem Israel. Divine snake magic is portrayed in several incidents of the Torah. When Moses and Aaron confront the Egyptian pharaoh, and their magic is tested against that of the court sorcerers, they cast their magic rods to the ground where they turn into serpents, but Aaron's swallows up all the others. Then, in the book of Numbers, there are fiery serpents that are biting and killing Israelites in the deserts. So God commands Moses to make a symbol of a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. If you were snake bit, you could just look at the brass serpent and be healed. Christians view the serpent in the wilderness raised on a pole as a prototype of Christ crucified. And if you believe in him, though bitten by the evil serpent, you will not die, but have eternal life. So again, it's snake against snake. If the snake is a force which gives life, in Miss Lonely Hearts it is a symbol of the illusion of resurrection or redemption. The scales of hysteria are mirrors which merely give the dead world a semblance of life. The Gnostic kenoma or cosmic emptiness, the wasteland, is not truly redeemed. Miss Lonely Hearts is a false prophet. The Hebrew word nachash, or snake, is etymologically related to the word for copper, nechoshet, a shiny metal. The skin of the serpent is mesmerizing. Its shiny scales are dazzling. The mirrors probably represent art, the purpose of which Hamlet said was to hold as twere the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. Miss Lonely Hearts, the novel, has little faith in art's ability to do anything in the real world, particularly with modern media. This theme will be developed more in the novel The Day of the Locust, but there's a great quote about it in this one. Quote, Men have always fought their misery with dreams. Although dreams were once powerful, they have been made puerile by the movies, radio, and newspapers. Among many betrayals, this one is the worst. End quote. Near the end of the book, Miss Lonely Hearts falls ill for three days with a fever, during which he achieves unity with God. Quote, he was conscious of two rhythms that were slowly becoming one. 
When they became one, his identification with God was complete. His heart was one heart, the heart of God, and his brain was likewise God's. End quote. In his delirium, the Christ figure transforms into a bright fly spinning with quick grace on a background of blood velvet sprinkled with tiny nerve stars. He has a vision or hallucination of the black world of dead things becoming a silver fish that rises to Christ the fly as bait. Christ has always been associated with fish symbolism, and he told his apostles that they would become fishers of men. When he arises from his religious experience, he sees Harry Doyle, the cripple whose wife Faye, Miss Lonely Hearts, has slept with, approaching at the bottom of the stairs. In his messianic delirium, he believes healing Doyle will be his first miracle, and he rushes to embrace him, but he in reality rushes toward his martyrdom, a useless martyrdom which saves nobody. By the way, performing miracles is not prerequisite of being a messiah in the Jewish tradition. The novel Miss Lonely Hearts takes up the problem of evil and the sense of suffering just as thoroughly as Ecclesiastes. Widmer writes, quote, To falsely order suffering takes the heart out of the human, which would better remain lonely in its unacceptable universe. That is the unmasqueraded message of Miss Lonely Hearts. End quote. The ubiquitous literary critic Harold Bloom, as he often did, had an interesting angle on Miss Lonely Hearts, a novel which he valued above all of West's other work, and it is his peculiar take that inspired me to turn this topic from a short episode into a series. I'm always doing that. He called it, quote, an involuntary instance of what the great scholar of Kabbalah, Gershom Sholem, termed Jewish Gnosticism. He went on to say that although there were no overt references to Jewish esotericism or Kabbalah, and though West was Quote, manifestly a Jewish anti-Semite. Nevertheless, Shalom's essay, Redemption Through Sin, about the theology of the 17th century Jewish false messiah, Shabbatai Zvi, and his followers, was, quote, the best commentary I know upon Miss Lonely Hearts, and the most illuminating context in which to study West's novels. Now, I found this very intriguing, but I must say that there is more heat than light here, and I needed to not only go through Sholem's essay, which you can hear me read if you donate to patreon.com slash symbolpod, but to look at the whole historical background in order to connect the dots. So strap in. We're going to go for a little ride. was 1666, and the Messiah had come at last. Although for Jews, the year was 5426, 
in the month of Elul, September on the European calendar. Elul means harvest, and the time was certainly ripe. Almost the entire Jewish diaspora across Europe and the Middle East was alive with jubilation after hearing the good news. There were riots in the ghettos of some cities. Many Jews in Poland had begun to remove the roofs from their houses, expecting that a wind would soon come and blow them all the way to Jerusalem. A story spread that in the north of Scotland, a mysterious ship had appeared with silken sails and ropes, manned by Hebrew-speaking sailors, and inscribed on its sails were the words, the Twelve Tribes of Israel. The location is interesting considering Scotland's role in esoteric history. Some believe that when the Knights Templar were formally suppressed by Pope Clement and King Philip IV of France in 1312, those Templars who managed to evade arrest and subsequent torture and execution fled to Scotland, where they were given refuge by Robert the Bruce. It's rumored as well that the Templar treasure originally taken from Jerusalem during the Crusades, is hidden in Scotland's Rosslyn Chapel, a place infamous for its unusual construction and symbolism. A legend also exists that Scottish Rite Freemasonry has its origins in the Jacobite movement, which had its greatest support in the Scottish Highlands. The Jacobites supported the deposed House of Stuart in England. Jacobus is Latin for James, so King James, but official history is that Scottish Rite began in the United States, in Charleston, South Carolina. The Messiah's name was Shabbatai Zvi. Originally from Smyrna in the Ottoman Empire, what is now Turkey. His biggest promoter was an energetic and brilliant young rabbi known as Nathan of Gaza, who prophesied that Zvi would soon take the sultan's crown and place it on his own head and in a bloodless coup establish the reign of the messiah he would then lead the newly returned lost ten tribes back to the holy land quote riding a lion with a seven-headed dragon in its jaws jews across the world would resettle palestine where the temple at jerusalem which had been twice destroyed first by Babylon and then by Rome, would be rebuilt. All the world's nations, we are told, this is the meaning of the word goyim, would submit to the rule of Israel, peacefully of course, and a new spiritual age of mankind would then begin. When Zvi arrived in Constantinople, the sultan had him arrested. What happened next was, well, not nothing. It was something worse than nothing. Zvi converted to Islam. He had been given three choices. One, subject himself to a trial of his divinity in the form of a volley of arrows. If they all missed, he was the Messiah. Two, be impaled. Or three, convert to Islam. But it really boiled down to two options in the Sultan's words, your head or the turban. Zvi took the turban, and he renamed himself Aziz Mehmed Effendi, 
which means the power of Muhammad. It's safe to say that this event was fairly embarrassing for most of Shabbatai's followers. After Zvi's conversion, the vast majority of the Jewish world understood Zvi to be a false messiah, moved on, and did their best to forget the whole affair. But a minority held fast to their belief, and they were by no means all fools. It included the aforementioned Nathan of Gaza and a physician and Kabbalist named Abraham Cardozo. But the true believers had a rather obvious problem to confront, which is how to reconcile Zvi's apostasy with his messiahship. How they did this had some far-reaching consequences, but we're going to circle back around to that later. Another major event in September of 1666 was the Great Fire of London, which started in a bakery and spread through the city, burning for five days. It seemed reasonable to many people of the time that they were living through the end of the world. The 17th century is a really fascinating time in history, European history in particular. Its many troubles can be considered birth pangs of modernity, forming a transition from the Renaissance and Protestant Reformation to the Enlightenment. From Copernicus at the end of the 16th century to Isaac Newton's Principia, published in 1687, we can see one of the most revolutionary periods in cosmology. It's usually referred to as the scientific revolution, and yet if we look closely, we can see that scientific modes of thinking sat side by side with mystical and apocalyptic ideas, sometimes in the same person. Astronomy was not sharply distinguished from astrology the way it is now. Notoriously, Isaac Newton wrote more on alchemy than on physics, and he was particularly interested in figuring out the date the world would end. He gives us at least till 2060, by the way, so don't panic. This probably won't surprise any listener of this show, but I love these times of history when you can't make any fine distinction between religious, philosophical, and scientific modes of thought. That's why I'm also fascinated by the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers. But anyway, the routine tumult and catastrophe of that time certainly kept apocalyptic religious ideas afloat. British Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm has dubbed this period the general crisis of the 17th century. There was the devastating Thirty Years' War, which largely took place in the Holy Roman Empire and may have killed up to 8 million people. That war has been seen alternately as being between Catholics and Protestants or between the Habsburg and Bourbon royal families. Then there was the English Civil War between King Charles I and Parliament, culminating in a regicide that initiated an age of revolutions from America to France to Russia, which would define the modern era. There's also the collapse of the Ming Dynasty in China, plagues and famine throughout the Mediterranean, and why not, what the hell, several volcanic eruptions. And all of this was taking place against the backdrop of the peak of what climatologists refer to as the Little Ice Age, meaning it was as cold as Dante's hell and not much more forgiving. 
so many shitstorms piling up in a world in which most people believed in the literal truth of the Bible. You may expect to get some people looking about for signs and portents, and indeed we do. One such was an astrological event known as the Great Conjunction. We'll talk about this in some detail later. We also have people wondering why should it be that God chose prophets and anointed ones only in ancient days? Why did Revelation cease? Well, in a world dominated by a universal, which is to say Catholic Church, all such revelations travel along official lines, but the Protestant Reformation opened the field somewhat. Now I think we're starting to get a picture of a world in which the arrival of a messiah makes sense. But there's a more specific political story behind it also. And for this history, I've relied fairly heavily on researcher David Livingstone, whose multi-volume order app Cow is entirely available online and much recommended. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Livingstone himself draws a lot for this section from a four-volume history edited by Richard H. Popkin called Millenarianism and Messianism in Early Modern Europe. Popkin is obviously a man after my own heart because in addition to his extensive work on this topic, he is a historian of philosophical skepticism and also the author of a little book called The Second Oswald. Dating to 1966, it is one of the early JFK assassination conspiracy theories proclaiming Lee Harvey Oswald's innocence. Respectable academics can't do that kind of thing anymore. The political prehistory for the arrival of the false messiah in the 17th century, as surprising as it might seem, involves a circle of millenarian, Rosicrucian-influenced, mostly Protestant intellectuals and political figures allied with Jewish Kabbalists and rabbis centered largely in Amsterdam, which formed a kind of proto-Zionism in order to, in Livingstone's words, quote, create a world government of the Messiah, with Prince Condé as his regent, based in Jerusalem after assisting the Jews in liberating the Holy Land and rebuilding the temple, end quote. This alignment is reminiscent of the alliance we're familiar with today between evangelical and fundamentalist Christians on the one hand, and Orthodox neoconservative or otherwise Zionist Jews on the other, the main axis of support for the state of Israel. But instead of being reactionary, this was definitely a vanguard, and where the religious right of today fears a global government, this 17th century coalition was trying to create one. At the center of all this was what's now called the Hartlib Circle, J.T. Young says, quote, it is a circle with a definable center, but an almost infinitely extendable periphery. Meaning, there's a few essential people and a seemingly endless amount connected to and influenced by them, like all the people who bought Velvet Underground records in the late 60s and early 70s. The circle was active mostly between 1630 and 1660. Two themes dominate the activities of the Hartlib Circle. First, the centralization and systemization of knowledge, which necessarily involved thoroughgoing education reform. An important precursor here is Francis Bacon. Hartlib's so-called Office of Address is modeled on Salomon's House from the New Atlantis. 
Jan Comenius's project was called Pansophism. A much more famous successor is the Royal Society of London, hugely influential in the development of modern science. You have to understand that at this time, knowledge was dispersed and fragmented, the product of scattered individual geniuses creating manuscripts that few could read. Most libraries were private. The Hartlib Circle wanted all knowledge centrally recorded and publicly available, a very modern project. This theme of gathering scattered fragments is important in another context, as we'll see. Secondly, the unification of the various sects of Protestantism, mainly the Calvinists and Lutherans. Even more ambitiously, they hoped for a reconciliation between Christianity and Judaism. You may have heard of something called Judeo-Christianity, certainly a foreign concept until recently, and one legacy of this group. Of course, there were previous attempts at religiously unifying Christians and Jews, which usually took the form of forcing Jews to convert to Christianity, and this will have very important consequences for the rest of our series. And then there was the much more soft power tactic of Christian Kabbalah, which was popular in the Renaissance and aimed at using Judaism's own esoteric tools of interpretation and divination to prove to Jews that Jesus was God. But the philo-Semitic Protestantism represented by the Hartlib Circle sought an alliance with Judaism on its own terms, and even if it still hoped for Jewish conversion in the end, this meant giving enormous support for Jewish political goals. They strove toward an ultimate unification, a task which they saw as preparing the way for the kingdom of God on earth. Here are the key players. Samuel Hartlib was a polymath and inventor known as the great intelligencer of Europe. There's an ambiguity in this phrase which makes it uncertain whether this simply means he was well-connected in terms of knowing a lot of people or a spy, maybe both. In other Forest of Symbols related news, in 1655, he wrote a book called The Reformed Commonwealth of Bees featuring a transparent glass beehive to a design by Christopher Wren. John Dewey was a Scottish Calvinist minister who worked to unite Calvinist and Lutheran branches of Protestantism. He supported Parliament against the King in the English Civil War and was Hartlib's closest collaborator. His connection to Cromwell is crucial for the rest of the story. Jan Comenius was undoubtedly the most influential of this set. Considered the father of modern education, he organized a system of schools that is almost exactly like the current American system of kindergarten, elementary school, secondary school, college, and university. He produced the first illustrated children's educational book, The Orbis Pictus. The whole idea of a special kind of education for children is modern, and according to media critic Neil Postman, helped create childhood as a social category. He also tried to design a language in which you could not express a false statement, which sounds somewhat like what was going on in early analytic philosophy, although I think that was more about trying to get rid of meaningless metaphysical statements, but never mind that. He 
also corresponded with one of the Rosicrucian founders, Johann Valentin André. By the way, this is already a jam-packed episode, so it's hardly the place, but the Rosicrucian Brotherhood is, shall we say, crucial for the story of the 17th century. Anonymous manifestos began appearing in 1614, proclaiming a secret Christian brotherhood founded by an almost certainly fictional character named Christian Rosenkreutz, which proclaimed the intention of spiritually and intellectually reforming the world. They probably didn't actually exist at the time, but they inspired a lot of subsequent intellectuals and esotericists, and more than one group later called themselves Rosicrucian. So you can consider it kind of hyperstition, perhaps. It's also been suggested, probably first by the English Romantic writer Thomas de Quincey, that Rosicrucianism is the true origin of Freemasonry. Comenius had been invited by the English Parliament in 1641 to help reform their public education system, but that project was shelved when the English Civil War broke out. He was also asked by John Winthrop the Younger to be the president of Harvard. He moved instead to Sweden to aid the Queen there in reorganizing the schools. And this brings us to the most important political figure of this network. Queen Christina was in many ways reminiscent of England's Queen Elizabeth, whom she had read about and admired. Christina never married and was a prolific patron of the arts and sciences. She acquired numerous important codices, rare books, and manuscripts from Prague Castle when her armies looted it at the end of the Thirty Years' War. Most of them had been collected by Emperor Rudolph II, one of the biggest patrons of the occult in his era. For a time, his court was host to the foremost occultist of the age, England's John Dee. Learning and collecting books was something of an obsession for Christina. I have to say, I kind of like her. I relate to her book Obsession, obviously. And there's also the fact that she may have accidentally killed René Descartes. She became interested in the ideas of the first modern philosopher, and hired him to personally tutor her. But it didn't go all that well. They didn't like each other. Christina was too much of a classicist for him, and she ultimately didn't care for his mechanistic philosophy. On René's part, he found her schedule too demanding, having to get up early to discuss religion and philosophy with her in a cold and drafty castle at 5 a.m. Eventually, he caught a cold and died of pneumonia. Christina ultimately abdicated the throne to her cousin Charles and spent her latter years traveling, staying in Rome and Amsterdam, where she had contacts with the prominent Jewish community there, the importance of which we'll soon see. Interestingly, for someone in these circles, she converted to Catholicism. She also became fascinated by Shabbatai Tzvi's claims to be the Messiah. She visited Jewish Sabbatean friends in Hamburg and danced with them in the streets in anticipation of his rise to the throne. In addition to Jan Comenius, another intellectual luminary that visited Queen Christina was Manasseh ben Israel, a rabbi and Kabbalist from Amsterdam, which boasted one of the largest and most prosperous Jewish communities in the world due to very liberal Dutch policies regarding freedom of religion. He was also the founder of the first Hebrew printing press. 
Ben Israel offered to serve as Queen Christina's agent of Hebrew books. I don't know much about this or why the deal didn't go down. Presumably he would be acquiring rare books in Hebrew for the confirmed bibliophile, but the two of them did form an ongoing political alliance. Ben Israel's wife Rachel was a descendant of the Abarbanel family, also known as Abravanel, who were reputed to be in the Davidic line. This is important for Jewish messianism because only a descendant of King David could restore the true kingdom of Israel. This is why both Matthew and Luke give an account of Jesus' genealogy, authenticating his candidacy for authenticating his candidacy for messiahship. But anyway, in 1644, Ben Israel met one Antonio de Montezinos, aka Aaron Levy a Jewish world traveler from Portugal. Montesinos was a Marano, meaning that he or his ancestors had only converted to Christianity under threat of expulsion, although he retained Jewish beliefs in private. He had been to the New World and regaled Ben Israel with tales of meeting the Indians of the Andes in South America. It was his belief that they were descendants of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. Montesinos claimed that he had been led by a chief named Francisco into the Quito Mountains and met people who could recite in Hebrew the Shema, a prayer from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Montesinos asked Francisco to tell him what he knew about these people, and the Indian replied, Your brethren are the sons of Israel and brought there by the providence of God, who for their sake wrought many miracles. Now, this scenario may sound familiar to you if you know anything about Mormonism, that the Indians might be descended from the supposed lost tribes of Israel, actually had been a fairly common speculation since Europeans discovered the New World. But the Mormon religion is actually founded on the idea, which forms the main narrative of the Book of Mormon. And in an oblique way, the modern state of Israel is founded on it too, since Ben Israel believed Montesino's story. Because the return of the lost tribes is said to be a sign of the Messiah's imminent arrival, Manasseh grew excited and decided that in order to hasten his coming, Jews had to migrate to, wait for it, England. Why England? Well, this is based on an interpretation of the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 7, which goes, quote, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth for ever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. End quote. Now, Daniel is going to play an important role in this story, but more on that in a bit. According to Manasseh ben Israel, this verse meant that the Jewish diaspora, which had not had a single homeland since the Romans destroyed the temple and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then put down the subsequent Bar Kokhba rebellion should be as dispersed as possible. This required there to be Jews in every country, 
and at the time there were no Jews in England. Well, there were probably not no Jews in England, but since 1290, when Edward I, or Edward the Longshanks, enemy of Scotland's Robert the Bruce, you've all seen Braveheart, right? Since King Edward kicked them out, there were officially no Jews in England, and that's what Ben Israel set out to remedy. In response to a letter from John Dury inquiring about the discovery of the lost tribes, Manasseh wrote a book called The Hope of Israel, laying out the Montesino story and declaring his support for the English Parliament and England generally, with the hope that they would soon readmit Jews. He dedicated the book to Parliament, in fact, and it turns out that there was already some support for this idea in England. It was not that long ago that Protestants could not openly practice their religion, and not only were ideas of toleration growing, but a Christian version of Ben Israel's messianism. It involved, of course, Jewish conversion to Christianity, but you can't really do that if there are no Jews to convert. But there was another slightly less lofty reason to bring the Jews back to the country. Ben Israel, after describing how Jews had to flit from one country to another, from one where kings and princes treat them ill to another where they are offered, quote, a thousand privileges, he asks baitingly, quote, And do we not see that those republics who do flourish and much increase in trade who admit the Israelites, end quote. This was quite obviously true for Amsterdam, which by then was being called the Dutch Jerusalem. Having fled mostly from Portugal and Spain, where those who were unwilling to convert had been expelled by Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492, Jews who came to cities like Amsterdam, Antwerp, and Hamburg could keep their Jewish identity. It's widely acknowledged by historians that recognizably modern capitalism began in Amsterdam at this time. And the late 16th to the late 17th century is known as the Dutch Golden Age. In addition to booming trade, it was the age of Rembrandt and Spinoza, the latter being infamously expelled by this same Amsterdam Jewish community in 1656 for his secular rationalism. But the network of Jewish trading families established there is a big reason for the boom. They dominated the tobacco, printing, and diamond industries, and yes, banking. Enter Oliver Cromwell, commander of the New Model Army, who led English parliamentary forces to victory over the Royalists, who was one of the leading advocates of the execution of King Charles I, and who became Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, and for a time basically a dictator. Although he was ideologically in favor of religious toleration, he couldn't help but think that this new republic could use some of that flourishing and increase in trade that the Dutch got for admitting the Israelites. It's possible that Parliament were getting financing from Jews in the Netherlands as early as 1643. Now there's some debate about whether Manasseh ben Israel was primarily motivated by the messianic idea or whether he played it up in the hope of Israel to entice the English millenarians while his own goals were more strictly political. But either way, it was John Dury who convinced Cromwell to invite Manasseh. 
There was a lot of politicking involved here, the details of which I'll spare you. But the result was a September 1655 visit by Manasseh to England with three other rabbis to argue the case. A conference was held on the, uh, let's say, question of the Jews in Whitehall that December, featuring prominent statesmen, theologians, and lawyers. The result ultimately was something along the lines of, we're not asking Jews to come back, but we're not going to fight them if they try. Manasseh wound up staying in England for two years after the conference, making contacts with many of England's intellectual luminaries, such as scientist Robert Boyle, one of those on the periphery of the Hartlib circle. One of the more ambitious goals of this whole deal was an Anglo-Dutch alliance with the Jews as go-betweens, but the Dutch resisted being incorporated into the British Empire, so it never happened. What did happen was the transfer of many Dutch Jews from the Netherlands to England, especially those with a commercial interest in British colonial possessions. Now, just to reiterate, it was Manasseh ben Israel's belief that in order for the Jews to reoccupy the Holy Land, they would first have to return to Britain. And it proved to be quite correct that, at the very least, Britain was key. Without the Balfour Declaration of Support for a Jewish Homeland and the British Occupation of Palestine in the 20th century, we would not have the modern state of Israel. Although there is as of yet no Davidic king and no third temple. Now, at this point, I should probably acknowledge that we've strayed a bit from our topic. Wasn't this episode supposed to be about grasshoppers? Well, that's just how it goes sometimes in the Forest of Symbols. You start out wondering why Philip K. Dick used a particular Bible quote and end up having to recount the secret history of the 17th century. But at some point you may have wondered what the connection was between the efforts of the Hartlib Circle to reform all existing knowledge and all this messianic stuff. In the 17th century, there was a common yearning for redemption, what Jews called tikkun. Popkin explains it thus, quote, The millenarians took seriously the injunction in Daniel that as the end approaches, knowledge and understanding will increase. The wise will understand while the wicked will not. They also took seriously the need to prepare through reform for the glorious days ahead. Their efforts to gain and encourage scientific knowledge, to build a new educational system, to transform political society, were all part of their millenarian reason of events. They needed to understand, to construct a new theory of knowledge, a new metaphysics for the new situation, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, which was to be followed by a new heaven and a new earth. Efforts to accomplish this great end are part of the making of the modern world and of the making of the modern mind." End quote. The book of Daniel was of central importance to both Jewish and Christian millenarians. This term, by the way, refers to the thousand-year golden age that is prophesied to occur prior to the final judgment. Anyway, Daniel describes the dream of the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar, of a statue whose head was made of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of mingled iron and clay. A great stone, 
not cut by human hands, fell on the feet of the statue and destroyed it, and the rock became a mountain that filled the whole world. Daniel tells the king that it represents four kingdoms, his own and three subsequent, all of which will be destroyed and replaced by a fifth kingdom, that of gods, which shall not be destroyed. Commentaries vary somewhat, but it's generally thought that the kingdoms are the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and the Roman. Jerusalem had been occupied by all. The stone that brings down the statue is the Messiah, cut by the hands of God. Now recall that a stone is used as a metaphor for the soul of Miss Lonely Hearts. According to Manasseh ben Israel in a work called The Glorious Stone or the Statue of Nebuchadnezzar, quote, Because the four monarchies were temporal, from various princes, different nations, and diverse lands, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans, it follows that also the fifth shall be of various nations and different lands, and consequently of the people of Israel, who possessed Judea by divine gift, and likewise the Messiah, who is the stone, shall destroy with temporal and earthly dominion all other monarchies. And in the very manner that the Persians destroyed the Babylonians and conquered their lands, the Greeks those of the Persians, the Romans those of the Greeks, thus the Messiah and the people of Israel, ending with this latter that into its own monarchy have incorporated the others, shall be the lords of the world with temporal, terrestrial, and eternal dominion.
The expectation of this fifth kingdom was embodied most vigorously in England by a group called the Fifth Monarchists, or the Fifth Monarchy Men. The so-called Wars of the Three Kingdoms in Britain brought a lot of politically radical groups out of the woodwork. Freaks, basically, according to everyone's favorite contemporary Jacobite, Curtis Yarvin. There were the Levelers, radical liberals or proto-libertarians. There were the Diggers, proto-communists who considered themselves the true Levelers, whose name was borrowed by a hippie group in 60s San Francisco. Then there were the Fifth Monarchists. They enthusiastically supported Cromwell and the execution of Charles I, which they believe signified the end of the Fourth or Roman Monarchy. Not to get too deep into the politico-religious history of England, but suffice it to say that some of Charles's policies seemed suspiciously Catholic for the radical wing of English Protestantism. They considered their own role as saints to be that of preparing the masses for the second coming of Christ, who was estimated to arrive in the year 1666, a date they drew from the book of Revelation, as 666 was the infamous number of the beast, plus a millennium, or a thousand years, a common number from Revelation, and indeed from the Bible generally. Most today would see this obsession over the exact date of the end of the world as unhinged religious fanaticism, but because we're dealing with the 17th century, it meant that some of the best mathematicians and scientists were on the case of calculating it. Now that I think about it, all these climate change warnings and concerns based on projections from computer modeling kind of seem like a contemporary version of the exact same thing. But anyway, as Livingstone describes it, quote, consensus agreed that 1260 years should be added to the date the Antichrist established his power, which Protestants took to be the Pope. Various calculations, therefore, settled on the years 1650 to 1656 for his destruction, the gathering of the Gentiles, the conversion of the Jews, and their return to Palestine. Other estimates offered the year 1666. End quote. Many fifth monarchists were antinomians, meaning they rejected the law. They considered themselves saved by Jesus, who alone could judge them. Plus, they had a duty to resist any regime that hindered the coming of God's kingdom. Some, but not all of them, were insurrectionists who advocated violent overthrow of the government. They wanted a biblically-based legal order. Unlike other Protestant radicals of the time, they opposed religious toleration and the extension of rights. In many ways, they sound like the American Christian right of today. Their ranks came largely from the urban artisan class of London and veterans of the New Model Army. They were initially Cromwellian, though Cromwell eventually came to consider them a nuisance. Following the Stuart Restoration, there was a fifth monarchist uprising of about 50 men led by a wine cooper, a profession I imagine was the 17th century equivalent of boat dealer named Thomas Venner, in which they attempted to capture London in the name of King Jesus. Uh, 
This began on January 6th, 1661. I'll say that date again, January 6th, 1661. Needless to say, the uprising failed and Venner, along with 10 others, were hanged, drawn, and quartered for high treason. We're starting to see a sort of interesting pattern in the dates here. The fifth monarchist uprising was on 1-6-1661. Shabbatai Tzvi's apostasy was on September 16th, 1666. I don't know what to do with this information exactly, but there you have it. Anyway, after Venner's uprising failed, the government started to crack down on nonconformist religious sects. Nonconformist religious sects. Nonconformist religious sects. Millenarianism still persisted, but in a decidedly milder form than that of the Fifth Monarchists. Now, when the Shabbatian movement broke out, the believers were certainly reading Manasseh's The Hope of Israel, and almost the entire Jewish community of Amsterdam were convinced Shabbatians. Historians of Shabbatianism note that it was the spread of ideas of the Lurianic Kabbalah that helped fuel belief in Shabbatai's messiahship. I don't have the details of this, but I'd be willing to bet that Manasseh's role as a printer of Hebrew texts played its part here. Shabbatai's father was an agent for an English trading house in Smyrna, so a connection with English millenarianism might have come through him. The supposed discovery of the lost tribes and the scattering of the Jews to all nations were major portents of the Messianic age, but there was another important one. Western astrologers had been interested in an event known as the Great Conjunction since the Middle Ages. This is when the orbits of Jupiter, which takes 12 years to round the Sun, and the slower Saturn, which takes 29.5 years, line up. Just by the by, Saturn was first observed through a telescope by Galileo in 1610, and its rings were spotted by Christian Huygens in 1655. Technically, a conjunction is whenever two or more planets appear in the same astrological sign, but there are times when these two planets are so close that they seem to form a single brilliant star in the sky. When it appears, it is believed that important historical changes are about to occur, but Jupiter and Saturn's orbits overlap roughly every 20 years, which seems a little too common for it to be that significant. But in fact, there's a larger, more complex cycle at work. Now, I'm far from an expert in astronomy or astrology. Friend of the show, Owen Briggs, is your man for that. You can listen to our interview and follow him on Twitter at Bull of Heaven. I'm going to do my best to explain this simply, but I can't guarantee you that I'm not getting something wrong here, which probably also goes for the history as well. As near as I can tell, there are three levels of the Jupiter-Saturn cycle, and thus three types of conjunctions labeled Great, Greater, and Greatest. Every time a great conjunction occurs, every 20-ish years, Jupiter and Saturn will appear under a different sign, 
but the pattern of signs isn't random. It progresses through the zodiac predominantly in signs of one element, earth, air, fire, or water, before moving on to the next. There are 12 signs and four elements, so basic math tells you three signs per element. If you look at a chart depicting the zodiac, the signs of a single element relate to one another in a perfect triangle. These are called the triplicities or the trigons. There's a cool diagram made by Kepler in 1606 that shows the great conjunctions mapped onto the trigons. When Jupiter and Saturn move from one element to another, that's a greater conjunction, also known as a mutation, which has a rhythm of two centuries rather than two decades. And the greatest conjunction is when the planets move through all the trigons and begin the whole series again. And here we're talking more like two millennia. In fact, the entire macro cycle takes about 2,400 years. And the aforementioned Kepler speculated that the star of Bethlehem followed by the three magi of the New Testament and that announced the birth of Jesus was the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in 7 BC. Isaac Abarbanel of the same family that Manasseh ben Israel married into wrote a commentary on Daniel in 1496 called The Wellsprings of Salvation in which he stressed the importance of the great conjunction one of which he said took place in 1396 BC, three years before the birth of Moses. He attributed to it the power to reverse the fortune of entire nations. The most recent occurrence in his time was 1464 AD in the sign of Pisces, and he believed that it would herald the coming of the Messiah. David Livingstone writes that, quote, According to their calculations, the Rosicrucians also associated the Great Conjunction of 1623 with the year 1666, which they also imparted with messianic significance. End quote. Now, it's not clear to me what exactly connected the year 1623 with the year 1666. There's another Great Conjunction in 1663, but not in 1666. An astronomer and rector named Paul Nagel apparently made the same connection. Quote, After a brilliant comet had burned in the night skies above Europe in November and December of 1618, Nagel issued the Stellae Prodigiosi, in which he outlined a complex astrological prophetic system. Based on biblical astronomical evidence, Nagel argued that this confluence of ideas demonstrated that the millennium, a time of future felicity for the church, led in spirit by Christ himself, would dawn in 1624. Following the great conjunction of 1623, this millennium would endure just 42 years until the last judgment in 1666. End quote. Next up to prophesy was Peter Serrarius, a wealthy merchant turned theologian from Amsterdam and an associate of the Hartlib Circle that we have yet to mention. He was friends not only with John Dury, but the philosopher Spinoza. In 1662, he published a treatise on conjunctions which foretold seven important events. Adam's fall, 
the anarchy of Enoch's time, the flood, Moses leading Israel out of Egypt, the captivity of the lost tribes in Assyria, the birth of Christ, and the rise of the emperor Charlemagne. The eighth conjunction, which would happen within a year, would see the gathering of the dispersed Jews and the establishment of the millennium. Livingstone again, quote, In 1664, Serarius rushed into a synagogue after the appearance of a comet and the birth of a two-headed cow, and he and the rabbis performed gematria and concluded that the Messiah would arrive in 1666. As soon as news reached Amsterdam about Shabbatai Tzvi, Serarius was publishing pamphlets in English and Dutch telling everyone about the signs of the Messianic era and that the King of the Jews had arrived. Serarius became a devoted believer in Zvi, even attempting his conversion to Islam, and died in 1669 on his way to Turkey to meet with him. Serarius was able to convince both John Dury and Comenius of Zvi's messiahship. Dury, who had been working for 25 years for the conversion of the Jews as a precondition for the second coming, spent much time trying to figure out where Zvi fit in the expected Christian scenario about the end of days. Dury offered the interpretation that God was rewarding the Jews by having their messianic moment occur and punishing Christians because they were not pure enough. End quote. But why should it be Jupiter and Saturn that were loaded with such heavy importance apart from this very interesting cycle of overlapping orbits? There's a magical tradition of making these lists of correspondences between various things like stones or metals or parts of the body and the seven classical planets, which included the sun and moon, but not the later discovered outer planets like Uranus and Neptune. Often these correspondences take the form of rulership, meaning that the planet has a controlling influence. It imparts its characteristics to the object in question. In astrology, every sign has a ruling planet. Jupiter rules Pisces and Sagittarius. Saturn rules Aquarius and Capricorn. By the logic of sympathetic magic, though, you can use these correspondences to draw upon a particular planet if you want its influence. Anyway, a popular medieval grimoire called the Picatrix provided a list of correspondences between the planets and various religions. The sun, paganism, the moon, worship of idols and images, Mercury, philosophy, materialism, and skepticism, Venus, Islam, Mars, heresy and apostasy, Jupiter, Christianity, Saturn, Judaism. Now, this is fascinating to me because the big theme of the story we've been telling so far is of an alliance between Christian and Jewish millenarians expecting the establishment of the kingdom of God. And at least some of these expected that the two religions would be united, or reunited, really, as Jesus and the early Christians were all Jews. So a conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn 
would be the perfect symbol of this union. I've heard Jupiter and Saturn described as the two kings, the jolly and the melancholy, respectively. Jupiter is held by astrologers to be the planet of good luck, benevolence, wealth, and expansion. Saturn is supposed to be the planet of severity, law, limitation, discipline. This is not too far from the traditional stereotypes about Christianity and Judaism. The forgiveness of Christ versus strict observance of Torah. Something of the conflict between Jupiter and Saturn appears to be at work in Shakespeare's play The Merchant of Venice, with its very Saturnine Shylock, the defining anti-Semitic caricature who insists on having his pound of flesh. And perhaps the influence of Saturn also explains the mysterious sadness of Antonio. But Saturn's influence is more complex than this stereotype. The term Saturnine describes a type of character that is cold, quiet, slow-moving, and sad.
Susan Sontag's essay on the Jewish Marxist critic Walter Benjamin is called Under the Sign of Saturn and examines his life and thought in these terms. Saturn also rules scholarship. But Benjamin's sun sign is Cancer, which is ruled by the moon, not Saturn. His Saturnine qualities probably come from his identity as a Jewish intellectual. Franz Kafka, probably the major Jewish writer of the 20th century, also had a Saturnine temperament that is evident in his fiction. Benjamin wrote major essays on Kafka, and interestingly, Kafka was also a Cancer. But anyway, when Jupiter and Saturn appear in the same sign, their opposed forces ought to work together. Now, I have a prominent great conjunction in my own birth chart, in my sun sign of Libra, which is the sign of harmony and justice. So I expect the two kings to be especially great partners. Saturn is the planet of hard work and learning, which really helps me get this podcast done. And Jupiter is the planet of financial success. So I expect the Patreon donations to start rolling in any day now at patreon.com slash simplepod. Note, if you're an astrologer, please do not message me to tell me that I'm wrong about this. Let me believe. Now, if you put any stock in the portents of the Great Conjunction, pay attention because we recently had a major one on December 21st of 2020. First day of winter solstice, 1221, a palindrome number. The same. We're moving from a period of conjunctions in earth signs to air signs. One astrology site I consulted predicted that this would mean a shift from materialism to spiritualism, a focus on the intellectual and ideological, a decentralization of power, and mass migrations. All that is solid melts into air. It also pointed out that the internet was experiencing its Saturn return, but that's another topic. And by the way, during the 17th century, the great conjunctions were in a cycle of fire signs, which does seem appropriate, does it not? Now, astrology has a somewhat ambiguous role in Jewish history. The ancient Hebrew equivalent to the word pagan basically translates to star worshiper, and it was denied that the magic or sacred number seven was related to the seven classical planets in a Jewish context. And yet Jewish astrology has always existed, and one remnant of this is the ubiquitous term Mazel Tov, which means good star. Nor should we forget that the most prominent Jewish symbol is a star. Belief in the Great Conjunction as a terrible omen was described by Sadia Gaon in his 10th century introduction to the Book of Daniel but only to denounce such astral divination as fraudulent. Maimonides also rejected astrological prediction. Ibn Ezra wrote a number of books on astrology, including a whole book on conjunctions, the Sefer Barot. In agreement with the Picatrix, he believed that Saturn influenced the Jews and Venus the Muslims, but he assigns the sun to Christianity which makes some sense because Christians worship on Sunday. 
Astrological determinism would seem to be at odds with the moral worldview of Judaism, but Ezra has an out by saying that in reading the stars, we can see only what happens when Israel fails to observe the Torah. Solomon ibn Gabirol and Abraham bar Hiya believed that it was possible to link the conjunctions of Saturn and Jupiter to a calculation of the arrival of the Messiah. Ibn Ezra was critical of these eschatological attempts, but not the significance of the conjunctions and their important role in astrological computations. The connection that these astrologers often make between Saturn and Judaism is far from arbitrary. The Jewish holy day, Shabbat, is on Saturday, or Saturn's day. It was thus assumed by the Romans that the Jewish god was Saturn. The name Shabbat derives from the word for rest, as it is the seventh day of creation on which God rested, and the related name Shabbatai is the Hebrew name for the seventh planet, Saturn. And on Saturn's north pole, there is a permanent hexagonal cloud pattern. This wasn't discovered until the Voyager mission in 1981, during a great conjunction, of course, and a star of David naturally would fit perfectly in the cloud as it is a hexagram, just as a hexagon is formed within the Star of David. It also has magical and occult importance beyond Judaism, of course, but we'll perhaps deal with that another time. The Messianic tradition held that there would be some connection between the Messiah and Saturn. Shabbatai Tzvi's name surely helped bolster his claims to be the Messiah. The scholar of Kabbalah, Moshe Edel, explores the connections between the planet Saturn, the Jewish Sabbath, and the witch's Sabbath that emerged in the Middle Ages and early modernity. Some Christians believed that witchcraft had a Jewish origin, and Saturn thus has a long-standing connection with sorcery. David Livingstone claims, quote, in addition to Satan, Lucifer, Abaton, Asmodeus, and Tryphon, Sabbathai was among one of the many ancient names of the devil. End quote. Many observers of the life of Shabbatai Zvi, including the pioneer in this area, Gershom Sholem, have believed him to exhibit signs of manic depression. He would go into ecstatic states in which he believed himself to be the Messiah, during which he would also commit violations of the Torah, such as eating non-kosher food or speaking the forbidden name of God. At other times, he would fall into a deep depression. Now, do we explain the affair of the false Messiah as a case of mental illness that got very out of hand? Or would authentic mystical states affect you in a way that looks exactly like mental illness? Or is there even a difference? I've spoken about this before. Philip K. Dick, with whom we began this podcast, experienced a panoply of spiritual visions in the early 1970s that could also be characterized as mental illness, after which he believed that God abandoned him and he experienced a period of suicidal despair. Now, I'm not going to solve this difficult problem here, but please listen to my appearance on the Art of Darkness podcast to hear more about the life of PKD. 
Shabbatai's strange acts committed in the throes of ecstasy, whether heaven-sent or not, surely helped spread his fame, even though they did not help the anonymous Miss Lonely Hearts. You might think that breaking the rules of the Torah would be an impediment to him gathering a following, but it was not so. There were some suggestions in the Talmud that the Messiah would break the law in just such a way. But it was true that many established rabbis mistrusted him, and after his self-declaration as the Messiah in 1648, a date drawn from the main Kabbalistic text, the Zohar, he was put under the cherem, or excommunication, in his native city. The same sentence that Spinoza got in Amsterdam. After this, he began traveling, and this is how he met Nathan of Gaza in, well, I shouldn't have to tell you where. Nathan would be his most enthusiastic promoter. Tzvi had initially approached Nathan in one of his down periods, in which he didn't believe that he was the Messiah, and was coming to the wise Nathan for help. But Nathan had had a vision that the Messiah would appear to him, Men will literally announce the coming of the Messiah instead of giving therapy. Shabbatai had a good singing voice, attracting large audiences by singing psalms all night. Once, after a deep Torah study session, he asked some of his followers if they had seen him flying during his meditation. When they said no, he told them that it was because they were not worthy to see it. He once bought a fish in the marketplace and dressed it up and carried it around like a baby, which he said signified that the salvation of the Jews would come under the sign of Pisces. In Safed, Loria's hometown, Tzvi broke down the doors of a synagogue during a service with an axe, shouting the holy name and demanding that everyone present shout it also. Worth recalling here that Miss Lonely Hearts' religious mania, his Christ complex, first manifested when he chanted the name of Christ in church. Zvi apparently placed tremendous importance on the tabooed holy name, which by Jewish law could only be pronounced by a high priest in the temple once a year in a liturgical context. After the destruction of the second temple, obviously it was not to be spoken at all. Moshe Edel describes an anonymous Kabbalistic treatise of the 15th century which claimed that when the Israelites invaded the city of Jericho, they broke down its walls through the power of Saturn by walking seven circles around the city and coming to rest on Saturday. Shabbatai and Nathan of Gaza were reported to have walked seven circles around Jerusalem. Shabbatai had an interesting romantic life as well. His first wife divorced him on the grounds that he was not much interested in sleeping with her, which is one of the few grounds traditional Judaism gives women for divorce. His second wife was the Torah, literally. He held the ceremony in which he wedded himself to the Torah. He took a third wife, which I guess makes him technically a polygamist since I never heard of him divorcing the Torah, his third wife was a whore. Now, that's probably a bit reductive to describe Sarah Ashkenazi like that, but it's not unimportant. Originally from Poland, 
She was a refugee from the Kimilnitsky Uprising, otherwise known as the Cossack-Polish War, a piece of 17th century nastiness that I didn't even mention as part of the general crisis earlier. The Cossacks, a quasi-ethnic, militarized, nomadic people from the steppes of Ukraine, united with the peasantry to revolt against the Poles, Catholic clergy, and Jews, the latter of whom were seen as oppressive landlords, and thus endured harsh reprisals. Ashkenazi was taken in by a Polish Catholic family and sent to a convent. At age 16, she went AWOL on the nunnery and fled to Amsterdam and then on to Italy, which is where she took to prostitution. Somewhere along the way, she developed a notion that probably isn't that common among whores, that one day she would be the bride of the Messiah. Somehow Shabbatai heard about this woman and sent messengers to the city of Livorno to inform her that she had been promised to him in a dream. Shabbatai's followers compared this unusual act to the prophet Hosea, who had also been instructed to take a, quote, wife of whoredom as a symbolic act of his calling. It was symbolic of the fact that Israel, allegorized as a bride of God, had been playing the whore with other gods. But there's another precedent that I think is just as relevant, and that's the story of Simon Magus and Helen, a nefarious character in the New Testament and often seen as the founder of Gnosticism. Simon was reputed to have taken a woman named Helen, a slave and prostitute, from the Phoenician city of Tyre as his wife. In the Gnostic interpretation, Helen is said to be the soul of God's first thought, the Ennoia, which was female, fallen, and trapped in matter, cyclically reincarnated and humiliated. She had earlier appeared as Helen of Troy. Now, if you've read Goethe's Faust Part Two, you might recall that the first thing the hero does with his magical powers is to revive Helen of Troy, ostensibly for her renowned beauty, but maybe for more esoteric reasons as well. Simon in the myth was the embodiment of God redeeming the fallen Ennoia. This idea recurs in a number of variations, as Hachamoth or the Lower Sophia, Barbelo or the earthly Aphrodite in Plato's Symposium. The Jewish esoteric tradition of Kabbalah has its own version as well called the Shakinah, meaning dwelling. It is seen as God's bride or his feminine aspect. On the tree of life, it is associated with Malkuth, the lowest sephirah, the emanation farthest from the Ein Sof, or the infinite. It is the densest, most material earthly realm. Even the story of Jesus contains the bit about saving the whore from a stone-throwing mob, which could be seen as corresponding to the jealous angels trying to trap the Anoya in the material realm. Now, if you don't know much about all of this stuff, don't worry about it. If you do know a lot and think I've made a hash of it, apologies. But the important thing is the notion of redemption in this myth. The influential Kabbalist Isaac Luria in the 16th century had presented a fascinating creation story that plays a part here as well. It's actually rather logical. In the beginning, there was only God, who was infinite. 
there was nothing that was not God, not even nothing. In spatial terms, there was no room for anything else. So in order to create, God had to contract or withdraw his divinity in order to open up a void to put his creation in. God had to create a wasteland, the kenoma, the abyss. He then re-entered this void as a ray of light, which was described as filling up a series of vessels. This is Luria's version of the emanation theory that you also find in Neoplatonism. But something happened midway. At the fifth sephira, called Gevura, light overfilled it. And there was a shattering. Fragments of the vessels fell into the abyss, trapping a residue of light. This is essentially the Kabbalistic origin story of evil, a catastrophe at the heart of creation. The remedy for this situation is called tikkun olam, or repair of the world. The sparks of divine light in Kabbalistic myth are trapped by the klipoth, the shells or husks, which in later magical tradition would be conceived as demonic personalities. The sparks require liberation to return to their origin in God. It's a drama of fragmentation and exile, and it's hard not to see in it a reference to Jews having their holy temple destroyed and then being scattered out in various lands, often living in situations in which they had to hide their identity as Jews. Interestingly, the Klipot are seen somewhat ambiguously as both entrapping and in a sense protecting the light, which is not dissimilar to how Jews have viewed Gentile authorities and peoples under whom they have been constrained to live. Traditionally, Tikkun Olam was simply making good laws and obeying them. In modern Reform Judaism, it's more or less equivalent to social justice. In Lurianic Kabbalah, it tends more toward the ritual than ethical, and can even take on an antinomian bent. Clearly, Shabbatai's violations of Torah laws had to be explained by his followers, and after his apostasy and conversion to Islam, those who remained believers still had a much more difficult task of justifying God's ways to men, and here they lean heavily on this idea of liberating the sparks. Nathan of Gaza was the chief apologist in a document called the Treatise on Dragons. Nathan calls the Messiah's soul the holy dragon. I described earlier the identical gematria value for snake and Messiah. He suggested that the soul of the Messiah had existed from the beginning of time and as a result of the breaking of the vessels had been held captive in the realm of darkness. Shabbatai's sinning was a descent into the realm of evil to pull his soul out. Sin must take place for the work of Tikkun Olam to be accomplished. As the poet Yeats wrote, For nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent. This is the doctrine Gershom Sholem calls redemption through sin. And in the Messianic age, biblical prohibitions would become commandments. Fast days would turn into feast days. Sexual prohibition would be abolished. A passage from the Talmud became a favorite citation for Shabbateans, which said, A commandment violated for its own sake was better than one obeyed not for its own sake. 
After two months' imprisonment, Shabtai was moved to the state prison castle at Abydos and accompanied by some of his friends. The Shabtians then renamed the fortress Migdal Oz, which means Tower of Strength. As Shabtai had arrived on the day preceding Passover, he slew a lamb for himself and his followers and ate it with its fat, a violation of Jewish law. He is said to have pronounced over it the benediction, Blessed be God who hath permitted that which was forbidden. Honestly, it's a little difficult to understand why committing sin is supposed to be equivalent to freeing the spirit trapped in matter. The only way it can make sense is to imagine a spirit that is incapable of being tainted by any material corruption whatsoever. As Sholem points out in the history of religion, whenever we come across the doctrine of the holiness of sin, it is always in conjunction with one or another spiritualistic sect. Gnosticism, which Kabbalah resembles in many ways, was the most dualistic religion, setting matter against spirit. Some Gnostics advocated total abstinence from sex because sex trapped the spirit in matter. Some taught that the spirit was simply not involved and sexual acts were irrelevant, a distraction at most. A few have taught that the way to overcome sexuality is to systematically violate sexual taboos. The only way out is through, I suppose, is the idea. Or perhaps the Nixonian principle, when the president does it, it's not illegal. But you also get, in the occult tradition, sex magic practices which aim at taking energy kindled in the lower parts and elevating them up the spinal column to the mental and spiritual realms. When drawing on a theodicy as Baroque as Kabbalah, differences of interpretation are bound to arise. Sholem writes, quote, Two somewhat contradictory rationalizations of antinomian behavior existed side by side. On the one hand, there were those who said, In the world of redemption there can be no such thing as sin, therefore all is holy and everything is permitted. To this it was retorted, not at all. What is needed, rather, is to totally deny the Berea, creation, a word that had by now come to denote every aspect of the old life and its institutions, to trample its values underfoot, for only by casting off the last vestiges of these can we truly become free. To state the matter in Kabbalistic terms, the one side promoted to withhold the sparks of holiness from the Kilipot until they perished from lack of nourishment, whereas the other insisted that the klipot be positively filled with holiness until they disintegrated from the pressure, end quote. Now, from what I can tell, most of Shabbatian's sinning involved things that are not especially problematic for non-Jews, dietary laws, the tabooed name of the divine, but even early on, Shabbatians were reputed to hold ritual orgies. And later, as we'll see, the sexual element will come to the forefront. But at the time, there was nothing Shabbatai did or could have done that was more shocking than converting to Islam. Of course, of course he was under threat, but he was supposed to be the great liberator. Martyrdom was one thing. You can build on that. Look at Christianity. Conversion required a different sort of justification. For the remaining believers, it was seen in the same terms a descent into the abyss for the purpose of redemption. But if the movement to continue, it needed to develop a broader philosophy. 
At this point, the movement split into two parts, which Sholem describes as, quote, a moderate and rather piously inclined wing of the movement on the one hand, and a radical antinomian and nihilistic wing on the other, end quote. Both wings justified Zvi's violation of the Torah as a necessary part of his messiahship, but where the moderates reserved the right to sin as the sole province of the messiah, the radicals claimed that it was not only allowed but even a duty for Zvi's followers to do as he did. Thus, a number of them also converted to Islam. In Anatolia, now Turkey, they were known as the Dunma, and they formed a long-standing, influential community within the Ottoman Empire and beyond. More on them next episode. Sholem's famous essay, Redemption Through Sin, which, remember, Harold Bloom proposed as the key to understanding Miss Lonely Hearts, breaks down five beliefs distinctive of the Chapitian radicals. One, the belief in the necessary apostasy of the Messiah and in the sacramental nature of the descent into the realm of the Klipot. This we've just discussed. Two, the belief that the believer must not appear to be as he really is. Formerly, Jews had been forced to adopt a double identity if they wanted to retain the faith of their origin, but now they did so on principle. Sholem elaborates on this, quote, A yawning chasm had appeared between inner and outer realities, and once it was decided that the former was the truer of the two, it was only to be expected that the value of the latter would increasingly come to be rejected. It was precisely at this point that messianism was transformed into nihilism. Essentially, its guiding principle was, whoever is as he appears to be cannot be a true believer. The true faith cannot be a faith which men publicly profess. On the contrary, the true faith must always be concealed. In fact, it is one's duty to deny it outwardly, for it is like a seed that has been planted in the bed of the soul, and it cannot grow unless it is first covered over. For this reason, every Jew is obliged to become a Marano. End quote. So there's a lot of paradox and maybe just contradiction involved in this. But one is tempted to see this at base as the exaltation of secrecy and lies. And it's interesting because we seem to have moved from apocalypse to crypsis. Now you see it, now you don't. Three, the belief that the Torah of Atzilut must be observed through the violation of the Torah of Berea. This draws on the theory of the four worlds in Kabbalah, realms of creation or emanation in descending order, Atzilut, Berea, Yetzirah, and Asiya. It sounds complicated, but it's not really that much different than Paul's distinction between the letter and the spirit of the law or the aforementioned Gnostic dualism. Sholem again, quote, to the pneumatic, the spiritual universe which he inhabits is of an entirely different order from the world of ordinary flesh and blood, whose opinion of the new laws he has chosen to live by is therefore irrelevant, insofar as he is above sin, an idea common to many sectarian groups which occasionally occurs in the literature of Hasidim as well. 
he may do as the spirit dictates without needing to take into account the moral standards of the society around him. Indeed, he is, if anything, duty-bound to violate and subvert this ordinary morality in the name of the higher principles that have been revealed to him. End quote. So just think about this the next time somebody says that they're spiritual and not religious. 4. The belief that the first cause and the God of Israel are not the same, the former being the God of rational philosophy, the latter the God of religion. 5. The belief in three hypostases of the Godhead, all of which have been or will be incarnated in human form. Now, this is already a pretty long episode, so I'm not going to explain 4 and 5. Instead, I'm going to plug the ongoing eight-part audio commentary I've been doing on Sholem's essay on my Patreon, in which I go into all of that and more. Once again, that's patreon.com symbolpod. Shabbatian affair had a brief but intense flare-up again nearly a century later when a Polish Jew named Jacob Frank claimed to be Shabbatai's reincarnation. Frank had been initiated into Shabbatianism on his wedding night. He developed the antinomian tendencies of the movement into true nihilism. Redemption would not come, he thought, until the world had become as evil as it could possibly be. The prohibitions of the Torah were positive commandments. His followers were duty-bound to bring about a time of pure evil. Frankist practices are reported to have involved the swapping of wives and daughters in religious orgies, the mixing of the sacred and profane, drug use, even blood drinking, Frank had sex with his followers and his own daughter, Eve, who took over the movement when he died. The Frankists apparently had their own exegesis of Holy Scripture, which involved a simple inversion of all the traditional values. Bad guys became good guys, positive symbols became negative ones. Possible example, Moses on Mount Sinai communes with an evil god to establish a tyranny over the free people of Israel. That kind of thing. Frank taught what he called the way to life. Pavel Macheco, scholar of Frankism, wrote, quote, The way to life also has a deeply apocalyptic character. It involves not only the destruction of established institutions, but also absolute denial of the world of creation and an attempt to destroy the very structure of the visible universe, end quote. He told his followers, who probably didn't number much more than 50,000 at the movement's height, whereas there had been more than a million Shabbatians. Quote, I came not to elevate your spirits, but to humiliate you to the bottom of the abyss, where you can get no lower, and where no man can rise from by his own forces, but only God can pull him up with his mighty hand from the depth. 
end quote. Now, I've spoken in the past about the concept of enantiodromia, so I don't want to elaborate here. You can go ahead and listen to my commentary episode on Jung's Christ. But there seems to be an expectation that if you push as far as you can in one direction toward evil, that you'll break through to its opposite. Frank's version of this he called Jacob's Ladder. It's derived from a ladder ascending to heaven, famously dreamed by the biblical patriarch, Frank's namesake, who he also claimed to be a reincarnation of. But this Jacob's Ladder was V-shaped. One had to descend as far down as possible before rising up. You could actually cite a precedent here in the path taken by Dante in the Commedia, in which the road to paradise necessarily led through hell and purgatory first. But remember, Dante rejected all the sins and even empathy for the sinners he encountered there. A better precedent, actually, is the prophetic idea of Manasseh ben Israel's that the Jews had to reach their furthest and most complete dispersion before they could be regathered into the Holy Land, another kind of enantiodromia. A Frankist ritual was discovered, the scene being a kind of B-movie version of Eyes Wide Shut, censoring on a nude woman, the wife of a local rabbi, wearing a crucifix around her neck and a Torah scroll for a crown. Recall how Shabbatai had married the Torah earlier. This was offensive to both Jewish and Christian sensibilities, but the local Jews were particularly worried that if word got out of such practices, the Catholic authorities would crack down on them. So they took the initiative and pronounced the harem on the Frankists. Included in this was a ban on studying Kabbalah for anyone but men 40 years old or over. You've probably heard about this rule, and now you know why. They turned the issue over to the Catholic authorities, but their plan backfired. Frank and his followers basically argued that it was the Talmudists that were the true heretics, not them. The Zohar, they claimed, affirmed the Trinity. It's almost as if they had come to the conclusions of Christian Kabbalah from the other side, except they didn't really believe any of these things. Frank went further and affirmed the so-called blood libel, by which Jews were said to murder Christian children for ritual purposes. The thing is, Frank actually wanted all of this to happen. Up until this point, rabbis were happy to deal with Shabbatianism through a conspiracy of silence about it. And that was no longer possible. Frank warned his followers of imminent and violent persecution and advised them of the need to adopt, quote, the religion of Edom, which in this context means Christianity. But this was just a means to Christianity's ultimate defeat, and a new future religion would be revealed by Frank. In the end, they did become Catholic, repeating Shabbatai's apostasy and permanently severing Shabbatianism from Judaism. In the past, Jewish conversion had been lamented. In the case of the Frankists, it was celebrated.
But this conversion raises an interesting question, which is relevant to the Dunma as well. Frankists and other radical Shabbatians are said to be nihilistic, or at least antinomian. So in what sense do they remain secretly Jewish if that Judaism is a total heresy? Does this not become a completely new religion in the same way that Christianity became a new religion once it was decided that Christians did not have to follow ritual mosaic laws like circumcision? Another question is, what happened to the Shabbatians and Frankists, and how do we know? The official story is nothing. They basically faded out over time. But as you can imagine, conspiracy theories persist, including the idea that they converted the Rothschild family, who helped Adam Weishaupt to found the Bavarian Illuminati. But we're going to look at that stuff a little more closely next time. We can definitely spot Shabbatian or Frankist themes all over the place in subsequent culture. I can find them, for instance, in Nietzsche's interpretation of the Prometheus myth and other aspects of his philosophy, in Kurt Vonnegut's novel Mother Night, in the film The Dark Knight and other Christopher Nolan movies, the practices of chaos magic and deep cover intelligence operations are very similar. And anytime you hear the term transgressive used with approval, you hear the echo of Shabbatai and Jacob Frank. In closing, I want to come back around to Nathaniel West and Miss Lonely Hearts. Given some of the Shabbatian themes and images of the book, is it possible that West was a Shabbatian or a Frankist? He's commonly taken as a Jewish anti-Semite or self-hating Jew who stripped himself of his Jewish identity and adopted Christian imagery. But his Miss Lonely Hearts has a job, advice columnist, whose most famous practitioners have been Jewish, Ann Landers, Dear Abby, Dr. Joyce Brothers. His next novel is set in the very Jewish milieu of 1930s Hollywood, Harold Bloom sees him as a Jewish Gnostic, like Bloom himself was. Nevertheless, he says, quote, It is a melancholy paradox that West, who did not wish to be Jewish in any way at all, remains the most indisputably Jewish writer yet to appear in America. End quote. Miss Lonely Hearts, he says, is, quote, profoundly Jewish, but only in its negations, and that West has quote, a messianic longing for redemption through sin if necessary. His black humor, quote, has no liberating element whatsoever, but is the humor of a vertigo ill-balanced on the edge of what ancient Gnosticism called the kenoma, the cosmological emptiness, end quote. I described earlier the book's relation to Eliot's wasteland and how West, unlike Eliot, pushes it further into the abyss, recalling the aim of Jacob Frank, whom Bloom calls an 18th century Shrike. I begin to wonder, Harold Bloom, famously a Jewish Gnostic who applied ideas from Kabbalah to literary criticism, could he have been a Shabbatian? I begin to wonder why not about PKD even, 
who at one point in his 2374 experiences speculated that the Rosicrucians might have been secretly sending him messages. Difficult to know. Maybe impossible. It's enough to make one at least a little paranoid. As Jacob Frank, that prophet of nihilism, said, quote, When a man goes from one place to another, he should hold his tongue. It is the same as with a man drawing a bow. The longer he holds his breath, the further the arrow will fly. Circle 